Thank you to Foundation Devices for being a sponsor of this podcast. When it comes to beautiful, air-gapped, open-source Bitcoin hardware wallets, this is a fantastic team to check out. Foundation Devices. Because I've come to realize it's not just about the hardware. The hardware can look great. It can be open source, it can be secure, but you also have to know the ethos of the team behind it because they're the ones who are going to offer you firmware upgrades. They're the ones who can change the functionality of your device. You can have a hardware wallet that does exactly what you need, but if the team starts to develop in a direction you don't like, like some would say Trezor and Ledger have started to do over the past year or two, it's not easy to make a change. You know, but the team at Foundation They'll tell you right to your face. They're focused on more than just your Bitcoin. They're focused on your sovereignty and your freedom. And that's why I support them. And I appreciate them supporting me with this podcast. You can check out Foundation and their Passport Bitcoin wallet at foundationdevices.com. On today's episode, I have a really thought-provoking conversation with Lynn Alden, who is the founder of the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy great blog at lynnalden.com and the author of the upcoming book broken money about the history of monetary technologies we're both bitcoin fans but i think you'll be surprised by some of the topics we get into here check it out Yeah, thanks for joining me, Lynn. I I really appreciate um, the insights that you offer on Twitter and on your blog. And you're one of the people. You're one of the few people in crypto. And I know you go beyond crypto, but you're one of the few people who seems to be universally respected. Well, I I try my best. It's definitely not universal. There there are certain pockets, especially uh, among some of the less decentralized cryptos, they don't yeah. like my criticism. So I'm not really well-respected from those groups, but I, I think I'm respected from most people I care about. Uh, it's interesting because I don't see that. Like Twitter doesn't show me that part of, of you. Twitter just shows me, oh wait, X. X, are we ever going to get used to it, man? Are we ever going to get used to calling it X? I, don't I think know. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter. And I, I think, I mean, I, I try to choose my battles. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've taken some swipes at certain cryptos. Um, but I guess because I don't do it too frequently, I'm not I'm not often having those kind of challenges. But, it, mm. you know, it kind of comes in waves. You know, if I make a, a particularly harsh criticism of one of the cryptos, um, I'll get I'll get that crypto army coming after me. Um, but other than that, yeah, I don't really I try. You don't really make that many enemies. You tweeted the other day. um that you, oh wait, let me find it. You see, you said you all see my published tweets. The unpublished ones are the funniest ones, but I've been too nice to post most of them. So, what are we missing? What's in the drafts? I mean, I think if <laughs> I think if someone has seen some of my criticisms of Elon uh, and and Twitter, um, they'd probably get an idea of what some of my other unpublished tweets are. Those are some of the ones I managed to publish. I've been pretty critical of Elon because I think one of the things that um, tends to annoy me is dishonesty. Um, so if there are people I disagree with, but I think that they believe what they're saying and like they're they're intellectually honest, even though I think you know I see the world differently, I feel like I can relate to that person. But I feel like if someone is playing a role 
or is trolling or is, is doing things like that, that tends to annoy me more um, than the other, the other way around. So he, uh, and especially because he's now running the platform. And so, you know, I'm not going to take swipes at most people. Um, but when the guy is running the platform, uh, I'm, I'm willing to punch up in other words. So why does it bother you? Do you think, like, what is it about it that eats at you? Is it, do you feel like he's, he's being um, a scammer or do you feel like he has ulterior motives or what is it? I think it's partially hypocrisy. I think he, so he's, he's historically been a very good marketer, um, you know, for much of the, the Tesla, um, period, he's been really focusing on the green angle um, and usually generally over-promising uh, either in terms of Tesla or solar things that he's going to do. And so he's he's been very effective at selling equity, um, which has really helped the fundamentals of his companies. Uh, and then he's now, then he, you know, when Bitcoin was having its bull run, he played into the Bitcoin theme and he got Bitcoiners to like him a lot, but then he shifted over to Doge and would like troll around with Doge, which actually you know, would in many ways cost a lot of people money. You know, he was basically kind of making these traps for people. And then uh, in the current era, he's now, I think he's, I think he's playing politics in a way that he's purposely rolling up certain bases and provoking other bases. And in all of these different things, whether he's playing around with ESG narratives, whether he's playing around with Bitcoin or crypto, whether he's playing around with politics, he's, he's pushing buttons, I think, strategically rather than because he feels any certain way. And one of the, I think, hypocritical aspects of Twitter is that if you look at some of the statistics, he complot like, so he's, he's operating on a free speech um, theme, you know, compared to the prior management. Mm -hmm. And in some areas that's true, but then in other areas, like especially uh, outside of the US, uh, Twitter's compliance with government takedown requests has increased under Elon's watch. Um, and one of the complications is that because Twitter is not his largest business, so Tesla and SpaceX are more important, um, there is a conflict of interest there where if, you know, the people running Turkey or India, uh, countries like that, if they reach out and say, hey, can you take this off Twitter? He's very quickly to comply because what he ultimately, ultimately wants to do is sell Teslas and rockets in those countries. Uh, that's mm. more financially important to him. And so there's a conflict of interest when you run a, a um, media platform and have other bigger bi business interests. I would actually I would argue that it's similar or worse than, say, corporate media when they have all sorts of major corporate sponsors, like you know pharmaceutical sponsors, for example, whatever the case may be, they're obviously going to be biased towards their major sponsors. While in, in, in Elon's case, his biggest kind of quote unquote sponsors are the rocket company and the car company. And he you know, will make deals with those countries. And then he, those tend to be the countries that he also has the most rapid takedown requests with. He basically complies he doesn't he doesn't fight back and even if you look years ago on twitter like india or turkey would ask them to take stuff down and they would say no and they would challenge it in their courts and stuff and sometimes win uh and elon has generally folded over quicker in those jurisdictions but the market where he has leverage is the united states and that's where he's um you know playing that what i view as a free speech game it's not true free speech but he's using that as his current theme in a similar way that he's used prior themes. Mm -hmm. And then there's obviously, th you know, there's things like the whole Substack fiasco, like 
you couldn't even like a post that would mention Substack for a period of time. There's just been like a weird set of behaviors that is not consistent with the, the, the angle that he's going on. And so I've been generally pointing them out. Isn't this, though, like what every company does now? Isn't this – I feel like global capitalism has resulted in if you're not a hypocrite in this way that you're describing, that you're almost betraying your shareholders because you're not seeking out – the, the strongest uh, profit route, you know, you're not, you're not, you're giving up money if you're not doing this kind of stuff. So isn't this kind of like a global thing, you know, or is it unique to Elon? So I think the thing that's unique is the, the Delta, the difference between what people think he's doing and what he's actually doing. So for example, if we, if we take Tim Cook as an example, you know, Apple, not many people these days have illusions that, that Tim Cook is, yeah, basically, I think that I think what Tim Cook's doing and what the perception of Tim Cook's doing are roughly in line. I think everybody knows he's got to do certain things to not, you know, piss off China, not piss off, you know, all the different major markets that he cares about, and he's got to be this kind of very controlled figure. Um, and and I have been critical of Apple, like when they, you know, when they do when they remove certain things from the App Store, like I, you know, I think that they have that kind of monopoly power, and they kind of go against their they're almost the inverse of their 1984 commercial, you know, like they're now the the big entity that's that's kind of, um, you know, like they'll take down like certain apps and they'll say you can't have like Noster uh, zaps in the app store, for example, because it, it violates their like, you know, that they get a cut of 30 percent of everything or that um, even if it's just a tip, it's not actually paying for content. Um, and so I've been critical of Apple, but I've not been as aggressive as most of these companies and i think the issue with elon is that the gap like unlike many other ceos a lot of people are actually fooled by it whereas no one's really fooled by tim cook they're not even really trying to fool people that much um but elon is more successful at it and so mm -hmm. i generally push back where i think there's a, a gap or a delta that's worth pointing back to because otherwise you're just preaching to the choir if i just come out and say hey apple's not a you know, they're, they're basically a giant corporate tool, like all other giant corporations. People are like, well, yeah, what else is new? Um, so I generally only go after things where I think there's a mismatch. And also, I think just naturally because my social media platform of choice is Twitter, and Elon obviously has a very big presence on Twitter. So I would come across Elon more than I would say come across most other CEOs in terms of content. Yeah. I just wonder, like, I'm thinking about, Okay, Tim Cook, for instance, a good example. Apple's pretty consistent with what they do and what they preach and what they <clears throat> actually execute. Um, but that's because that's because they've they've uh, that's their strategy almost. Like they've taken the human element out of leadership in a way, at least publicly, right? So Tim Cook obviously has a lot more views than he says to us, right? He's, he's just yeah. not out there spouting out everything that he thinks. And then when he brings that stuff into the boardroom, you know, the, the, the leadership of the company is able to shout it, you know, shoot it down and make sure he's, it's not the Tim Cook show. Apple would never allow that to happen. Now it was the Steve Jobs show, right? So it's interesting how Apple has evolved and sort of learned its lesson uh, from those days because I'm sure you'd agree. Like the the Steve Jobs Apple was a lot more like the the Elon Tesla SpaceX uh, um, X Twitter 
um, than Tim Cook Apple is, right? So it seems like Apple's made that strategic decision. So are there other, I just feel like though that there's, there's almost like a balance. Like, do you feel like Apple's struck the right balance there or should there be more humanity and less politics into the leadership of a company like that? Well, I think it's somewhat inevitable. I mean, when you're a $3 trillion company, um, you know, I, I, I just think mainly it's not that I want to necessarily give Apple advice um, other than to criticize them for certain areas sometimes uh, where inter- where I think it um, kind of interferes with decentralization or kind of makes a mockery of their prior uh, themes, uh, mm-hmm. which, is, which is fairly uncommon, but still pops up. Um, and even the Steve Jobs era, I mean, I've, I'm not someone who's ever really been that critical of Steve Jobs. I mean, he has certain parts of his personality that I think people are critical of, rightfully. But um, I wouldn't really put him in quite in the same camp as Elon. He's certainly a colorful founder uh, and larger-than-life character. Um, but I don't think that he had that as big of a mismatch between what he would say and what he would really think uh, as Elon does. Um, and so... You know, I, I mainly just focus on where I think there's a gap, and it's a combination of focusing on where there's a gap and just focusing on what's around me. And because I'm on Twitter, you know, Elon's around more than say Zuckerberg is, for example. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've been critical of Zuckerberg in the past, um, but I think in this in this kind of current, you know, the past few years, um, I've generally found. You know, the, the Elon mismatch, I think, is the most the most interesting one for me to criticize, at least. I mean, you know, there's other, you know, world leaders or figures out there that I would obviously dislike more than Elon. But I feel like anything I would say about them is not particularly different than what the consensus seems to be. So it's mm. less worth saying. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying is there's, a, there's direct connections to the stuff that I've been saying about the stuff that's going on with Ethereum and the um, you know, DeFi slash Web3 stuff that's being built and it's being promoted as decentralized. And it's clearly not, you know, when you dig in, um, you know, and you find these these chain link things and you find these different things that completely almost centralize it just by that by the essence of that one fact. Uh, and my, my take is always, look, if you're going to do this stuff, uh, be transparent about it and don't just be transparent, like stick it on page 300 of your docs, but don't go out to the world. Don't go out to the press and say, Hey, this is decentralized. It's the first time in the world we're seeing stuff like this. It's, you know, this is going to remove middlemen from the equation when you know, it's not true. You know, you're, you're actually out there lying to people, um, sometimes through omission and sometimes by actually lying with words. And I think the common theme between what you're saying and what I'm saying with this stuff is, is, um, about, it's about being transparent with your, with your motives, you know, at least to the point where people aren't getting scammed, you know? And I think, um, I think that it does, and you know, I've been using the word scam a lot lately. I'm curious how you think about it, but I just think about it now as just dishonesty, dishonesty and, and I'll, a deliberate lack of transparency so that the people that are using a product or they're using a service don't really understand the ramifications of what they're using, 
Do you think that makes sense as far as like calling something a scam? Yeah. So to unpack that a little bit, I think to start with, I think that whole comparison is correct, meaning that my criticisms of Elon are similar to your criticisms of crypto. Um, basically, you you notice a gap between what is said and what you what you evidence is true, and uh, and maybe you know there's a number of categories where you might you know cover that, but you happen to have certain things you cover more. So it's crypto in this case, and so that's where you know people will ask why do you spend so much attention on this, and it's you know you can you can articulate better than I can, but you you point out that well it's because there's a gap between what they're saying and what is true, and so you've been you know, putting some effort into into focusing on that. I don't put as much effort into the whole Elon Tesla thing. I just kind of point that out as something that I tend to be a little rougher on because that's that's the gap that tends to, you know, get my attention uh, significantly. I think that's it's it's for similar reasons. And I for both crypto and say Elon companies, I tend to be I try to be targeted. So for example, I I don't criticize SpaceX that often, um, whereas I'm you know, it's, it's not an area where I, it's not like if a rocket blows up, I'm out there like, hey, look at this. You know, I'm not, I'm not that critical of SpaceX. It's, it's more been directed at certain aspects of Tesla, like certain false promises there, or, or more recently, certain false promises with, you know, free speech or the, or the gap between what he's doing in the U.S. versus elsewhere and these conflicts of interest and stuff. So it's, it's a targeted type of criticism. And when I focus on crypto, I generally, I kind of start by painting with a broad brush because, you know, I mean, out of the tens of thousands of coins, you know, most things are garbage and the burden of proof is always on the project to demonstrate some degree of value. Um, but when I'm criticizing a specific project, I, I try to use the word scam a little bit selectively. Um, I, I tend to reserve that for what I would define as or describe as projects that from the inception are intentionally malicious projects purely to capture money, uh, which is a lot of them. Um, and I, tr I try not to use scams for projects that have a little bit of something there um, or that I can see why the creators, you know, honestly thought something that they're doing is interesting. Um, but then are over marketing or overstating it, or you know, probably probably in some cases believing their own narrative. Um, I I generally criticize that in other ways um, rather than kind of outright calling them a scam. Because if I call everything a scam, then I dilute the word scam. And so if there's like a more obvious scam, then what word do I use for it? So um, I I try to usually when possible, I try to target appropriately or, or pick my words carefully. But I, I think scam is probably the right word for, you know, most projects in crypto. Yeah. What do you do when everything is a scam? <laughs> what do you I do mean, then? that's, that, well, that's, I mean, that's one of the criticisms that people level at me is they, you know, they say I'm a Bitcoin maxi, which is, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I guess, Bitcoin maxi adjacent. Um, I like Bitcoin as a, as a network. Um, I've been, you know, constructive on stable coins because there's real demand for them uh, in certain markets. Um, but outside of certain areas like that, I, I've been very critical of, of the broad space because I think the, the long tail of almost all of it is affinity scams, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I 
I came from the Bitcoin mindset, you know, and I brought that to the Ethereum stuff that I'm looking at. And it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting evolution, actually, over the last uh, six, seven years, you know, as far as um, the, the, the core principles have stayed the same, you know, as far as the, the measuring stick, although Bitcoin does have some uh, concerns for me long term that I want to talk to you about that later. But you know, as far as the Ethereum stuff goes, what I've been noticing about myself is, well, not about myself as much as other people, I guess, is that people come into anything that's called blockchain or decentralized or, you know, whatever they call it, that gives you that idea that it's something different, something new. People come into it assuming that it inherits a lot of the properties of Bitcoin as far as trust minimization and the ethos of it and the the um, intent behind the project. You know, people come in with that mindset. And in Ethereum, that's almost, it's almost never the case, right? There's always these points of centralization that would be absolutely intolerable in Bitcoin. And so, um, you know, this is what I go to the developers and I say, you're not you're not explaining this clearly enough so that a new user will get it, you know, and, but they say, then they point to page 300 of the docs and they say, well, it's right there. I say, do you think that a new user is really going to read your docs and get, even get to page two? Like, no, they're not going to know what you're talking about. And this is, and then I, I switch into a regulator mode. Like I switch into like a government mind where I'm like, the only way that you can make this not a scam, in my opinion, is to, on your homepage, in plain English, with a big yellow triangle or a big red siren, like, say to the user, there are centralized parts of this that you may not understand. You know, this is who you have to trust. This is what you have to, and almost make it, like, like so obvious that you can't possibly miss it. But then I realize, okay, nobody's going to willingly do that. The only way you can do that is if you force them to do that. So I get to that point where I'm like, you know, I go from Bitcoin maxi to like full on, like, like I want to use the force of the state to like force them to be honest. Um, but it's, it's interesting because that's what they do. You know, that it's almost inevitable. I think like, don't you think that that kind of regulation, it, that's exactly why regulators exist. And they're going to look at this stuff once it reaches critical mass and be like, you have to do this. Does that make sense? Well, that's what we've been seeing recently. The SEC has been at least trying to do that. Um, I think the way I characterize it is that I say, you know, if we take politics out for a second, you know, wherever someone is on the political spectrum, whether they're in favor of regulation or whether they're, you know, in favor of no regulation, I think a lot of people would agree on consistency in regulation. So, uh, you know, if you're arguing that there should be zero regulation in crypto, you can also argue things like there should be, you know, zero regulation in in you know mail spam or mail fraud, or there should be zero zero regulation in you know mailing like penny stock things to like senior homes and stuff like that, right? There's there there's basically you don't see people kind of consistently arguing across the board. Crypto is kind of the current battleground, and so I think one way to think about it is that there's been a trend of gatekeepers being taken down. So, you know, before to publish a book, you generally have to go through a traditional publisher. Over time, self-publishing got easier. But of course, you know, the upside is it's nice not to have gatekeepers, but the downside is the the long tail of low quality books is going to be bigger because 
you know, the filter is non-existent now. The same thing is true for games or the same thing is true for music, where when you take down the, you know, you when you basically enhance technology and allow people to go to market more directly, um, it's good. But it, the, but then users have to understand that there's going to be a longer tail of bad content with those gatekeepers gone. And what, what blockchain did was allow basically peer-to-peer security issuance. So, you know, instead of penny stocks having to go through the SEC, you basically make these penny stocks that go right to retail. And then regulators have had to kind of catch up to that and then decide how they want to apply existing securities laws to these types of assets. So I think in general, if someone's not in favor of any crypto regulation, you'd have to basically argue that you're in favor of the SEC being abolished or diminished in some way. Um, whereas I think if you're in favor of consistency, you say, well, whatever, however tight or loose the regulations should be, they should at least be applied as consistently as possible, which is basically my position that I think countries can have different levels of strictness, but I, I think consistency is important. Yeah, that's like looking at it like from that point of view where you you can see the gatekeepers are being eliminated, right? As far as, like you said, like books, like um, stocks, uh, sort of like with crypto, you know, I mean, I guess they are kind of like penny, like worthless penny stocks. You're just flipping tokens, basically with penny stocks too. But um, people don't seem smart enough now to be able to filter out these types of 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 um, dishonest schemes you know when it comes to crypto and i think a lot of it has to do with the way that people have been infantilized almost like by the by the government over the past hundred years or governments around the world you know i think that people just don't um, they they are too trusting, I guess. Is you know, I always like to say like misplaced trust is the root of all evil because it is. If you're not skeptical at the right moments of your life, your life can be absolutely ruined, and you can be turned into an evil person, you know, yourself. You know, so <clears throat> do you think that there's hope for people to be able to to do this, to filter through this type of stuff without state actors coming in and making those decisions for the market or is it inevitable that the, that the state's going to get involved and start to pick this thing apart? So I think these things tend to come in waves. And as people experience it more and more and more, it starts to become ingrained in culture, uh, at least not, not to everyone, obviously, but it becomes more understood. Like the heuristics that crypto is a scam, I think, is widely being adopted. Um and but it takes time, it takes iterations, and it takes multiple failed examples. Basically, you have to you have to see like multiple different wrong answers. Um, and so, I mean, an example is that um, older people will fall for like email phishing attempts far at a higher rate than than younger, more internet savvy people, because they they grew up in this environment. Uh, they're it's more just like obvious to them, and that's just a generational learning thing. Um, and I, so I think a lot of those things kind of go through that route. Um, but of course, to the extent that regulators exist, I mean, their, their job is to try to apply the law consistently. And so if they're saying you can't issue a security and then someone says, well, I issued a security in digital form, it's like, well, that's, I mean, you're still issuing a security then if it, if it meets the description of a security. Um, and, you know, maybe for example, some country like Singapore or Dubai will have, you know, weaker laws 
And maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least if they're consistent about it, versus maybe the U.S. or maybe the U.K. or you know whatever jurisdiction it might be might have stricter laws. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I think people will debate along their own political lines where the right resting point is. Um, but I think it's it's consistency is important, and I think that people can focus on what they control. So, you know, regulators are going to regulate and those of us that are just private market participants, uh, instead it becomes more about social pressure or um, just warnings and educational content. Basically, people that take the time to call out the scams or the, or the bad marketing or the traps or things like that, it's important that people do that because that's part of the signal and that's part of the generational knowledge accumulation that helps, you know, a, a higher percentage of people avoid those types of traps. Yeah. But then you look at, you know, things like, uh, the Richard Hart thing recently, right. With hex and all that. And you look at, um, other things going on and you realize like, it's, <laughs> you can't save people from themselves almost. Right. So it's like human nature is, is devolved to the point where people are, are using their money to, to, you know, to, to join a cult basically, you know, like stuff like that. And, and this, I mean, you could even make that comparison to certain cryptocurrencies, right? Where there, there's maximalism to the point where people will just stay there, you know, and like drive it, you know, they'll follow it to zero, you know, and then these are the, these are the things that are going to be discussed in Congress, Right. These are the examples that Elizabeth Warren is going to provide when she's advocating for crackdowns on banks to stop allowing people to purchase crypto and stuff like that. So I just I start to lose hope in the current set of humans on the earth. You know, as far as like, you know, this is where I've been going lately. I've been going in a direction very, very kind of nihilistic um, way. You know, when I see the world coin lines and I see the, you know, the videos that are coming out now with biometric scanning and whole foods and stuff like that. And I start to realize, oh my God, like the world's splitting between, it's just like, there's some of us that, that can see it. It's, it's, they live. Have you seen they live the old movie from the eighties or whatever? It's familiar, but I, I'm not sure I've actually seen it. Oh my God. You got to see this movie. It's, it's still good today. It's about this guy Who's who's basically starting to realize that there's there's almost like these aliens among um, the population. They just look like normal humans, but they're aliens, and you can only see them if you wear this special set of sunglasses. And when you put on this special set of sunglasses, you can see who the aliens are, and you can also see that all around you is written all these messages that are like brainwashing people into just being you know, complacent and stupid and stuff like that. And then when the aliens start to figure out he's got these special sunglasses, they try to kill him and this whole thing. It's so good. Please watch it. I think you'll like it a lot. Interesting. Uh, but... <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out. I, I think I think to your broader point, I mean, you know, I, I, I fall prey to nihilism sometimes. I think one thing I try to do is snap myself out of it by saying to myself not to fall, not to fall um, for like recency bias. So whenever... You know, we, we, you know, we're in a certain generation, and so our generation has our focus on the current problems, and it seems like worse than prior times. But I mean, if you look back in history, I mean, there were some truly awful periods in history, and we, you just think, how could people ever get so dumb, and how could they ever recover from that? And then they, they did in some way. I think basically, eventually, they, it got so bad it ran its course, 
and then there was some degree of societal adjustment around that. Um, and so, you know, if, if right now, a lot of that is this digital form, it's biometrics, it's, you know, tracking, it's lack of privacy, it's um, just low information, it's people getting caught in echo chambers of various types. Um, those are some of the modern problems today. Um, and there's they're unique problems, um, but they're they're kind of rhymes of of you know problems of prior generations and sometimes worse problems. Yeah, yeah. It, it, to me, it's like all roads with all this stuff. That and my main concern and the reason that I care about all this is because of this idea that's sort of been lumped under the term of the CBDC. Right, the central bank digital currency, which now like nobody actually even knows what it means anymore. It's just like this almost like umbrella term for basically total government control of the money supply from, you know, the point of minting to, you know, being connected directly to your your account with the central bank. And I, I think that's the way I think about it. I don't know how others think about it at this point, but to me that that's the that's the idea. You know, the idea that no matter how many central banks, no matter how many central bankers tell you it's never going to happen, it's going to happen because technology never stops and the government never stops abusing it, right? So the idea is you got a central bank, you've got your digital wallet, whatever it looks like at the at the point that this is launched. Uh, central bank mints money, it goes straight into your wallet. There is no third-party retail bank. And if it exists, it's almost inconsequential. It's like an arm of the government at that point. And the government can add money to your wallet. They can remove money from your wallet. This wallet's connected to your biometrics. It's connected to your social credit. It's connected to your medical history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All through what people are calling decentralized identities, EK proofs, et cetera. Do you give this stuff much thought? Like, where does this stand on your priority list? Well, to give an idea of how much thought I, I give it, um, I just finished writing a 500-page book. Um that's adjacent to this topic. Uh, it's coming out later this month, actually. So I guess it's a it's an accidental plug, but it's called Yay. broken. It's called broken money, and it it discusses the problems that I view that money currently has and how we got to this point. And a big theme throughout the the, the book is, you know, the past more than a century and a half of further and further centralization of finance. Um, and of course, the later chapters get into central bank digital currencies and things like that. And, you know, generally writing a book is not the most lucrative thing you can do, like unless you're, you know, like, I mean, obviously some, some authors get a lot of value out of it, but in general, uh, it's not the best uh, return on investment compared to, you know, like if I, I focused a lot of my spare time this year on the book and to some extent I had to, you know, give up growth, uh, parts of my business. Um, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not the most lucrative thing by far that I could have focused on. Um, but I did it because I kind of felt like I had to like, um, the culmination of a lot of my research over the past five years or so. And I felt like I had a unique angle or a certain story I wanted to tell. And so it's not a book that I felt like I just chose to write. It's something I just felt like I had to write. So basically to answer your question, the centralization of money including things like CBDCs uh, as kind of the, the ultimate expression of that uh, is something that has been top of mind to me for the past uh, several years. How 
imminent do you think the threat is? I think it, it depends on a jurisdiction. I think that's a, it's a very different answer between China and the United States, for example. Um, I'm somewhat heartened by seeing what's been happening in Nigeria um, because they launched a CBDC and it has had very low adoption for, I think it's over a year and a half now, maybe approaching two years. Um, it shows that governments don't always succeed when they launch one. Now, obviously, Nigeria might have less success than China or the United States um, that has more resource, resources to deploy in the success of their CBDC. Um, like, I think China has a much higher likelihood of being successful as they continue to roll out their CBDC. Um, but I th basically, I think that answer is very um, jurisdiction specific. I think that China is many steps ahead of the United States. Um, the United States benefits from uh, you know, you'd have to change the Federal Reserve Act, probably. You'd have to go through a very polarized Congress. Um, whereas generally when you see big sweeping changes, like let's say when FDR banned gold, he had like a super majority in Congress. Like you, you had such a landslide. It was like the biggest landslide ever, um, or at least in, in, you know, the past 100, 150 years or whatever. Um, just a huge landslide. And that's how you get these kind of um, major changes. And if you don't have that type of political consensus, then there's a lot more um, blocks in the gears that, that prevent those types of big things from happening. Whereas if you're in more of an autocratic country like China, there are fewer things between um, you know the enactment and the outcome. Um, and you know, so China has been able to move somewhere quicker um, whereas other countries are going to have all different degrees of speed based on their own kind of specific legal roadblocks and frameworks that can slow it down. Yeah. That's what I wonder sometimes, like, is it really, can we ever really reverse these trends or can we just slow them down? You know, because the technology doesn't go back in the box. Like once it's out of the box, somebody's going to use it at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I so I think the only defense is other technologies that are out of the box. Things like Bitcoin or other encryption in general, you know, sorts of, of decentralizing technologies. Um, and the, one of the themes I touch on in the book is that so a lot of banking developed because precious metals has certain limitations of authentication, portability, and so a lot of these like proto banking channels would be set up, you know, many centuries ago, basically ways that kind of early versions of bills of exchange, you know, ways to send money long distances, ways to transfer value without having to actually transfer gold every time. And then it, of course, it got more and more sophisticated over time. You got more and more, um, you know, full service banking. And then in the second half of the 19th century with the invention of the telegraph, and the deployment of the telegraph throughout like the 1860s, for example, you had now the ability to send information around the world nearly at the speed of light, uh, which means you can send transactions at the speed of light, but of course you can't send settlements. You can't send physical gold at the speed of light. And so you had more and more abstraction between transactions and settlements, and that results in more and more centralization. Um, and then, of course, that only expanded with, you know, credit cards, the Internet and everything else as it got faster and faster. And what's interesting about strong encryption and what's interesting about Bitcoin is that, well, Bitcoin now speeds up settlements to nearly the speed of light to varying degrees. 
And so in some ways, it's the first, it's one of the first kind of like financial innovations that might reverse kind of the multi-century trend where previously everything that made money more convenient tended to centralize it more. Whereas now, in some ways, this makes it more convenient, but also decentralizes it, or at least gives tools to decentralize it, or gives escape valves to the existing trend of, of centralization, um, gives people ways to opt out, uh, gives governments frictions um, if they want to, you know, go after them. You have to try to get people not to run nodes or not to, you know, not to be able to buy it from exchanges, and then you know they cut it off from their country's banks. But then you see in Nigeria and Argentina, they, they get it cut off from their banks and they still manage to acquire it. They buy it peer to peer because they're in environments where it's more obvious to them that they need it. Um, and so I, I think to some extent, I'm a technological determinist, which is that most things that can exist will exist um, over time. And so it is true that things like, you know, centralizing technologies like central bank digital currencies, once they are an option now, they're always a threat forever. But at the same time, now that certain decentralized peer-to-peer technologies are existent and known, uh, they're also an alternative forever. And they can keep propping up whenever people feel like they need them. So now it's like a battle between can the bottom-up decentralized people build faster and, and build more robust solutions, or are the top-down um, people going to win? And I think in terms of culture, I think the decentralization is starting to, it's, it's, it's doing well around the margins. I mean, basically the, the faith that, that people have throughout much of the, of the world in institutions is low. Um, it's been dwindling for a long time. That's politics, that's media. Um, it's, it's, you know, all the things that, you know, say our parents and grandparents would trust more than we trust now. We've had a degradation I would argue both in the quality of those institutions, but then certainly measurably the perception of those institutions. And so that certainly weakens the top-down ability, at least in many jurisdictions, to implement these things successfully. Um, but then to your point also shows how gullible or ill-informed a lot of people can be. And so when when they have you know pain points in their lives or things aren't going well, they're they're more they're, they are pretty easy to turn to big government promises for things. So I, I think what gives me some degree of hope is that while these centralized technologies will keep getting better, now there are at least are some decent tools to, to push back. Yeah, that's that's the reason I got into Bitcoin. Like it was about having an escape hatch, right? Like having an alternate path. It wasn't about the investment opportunity. It was about having some separation from this group of people in Washington, D.C. that want to control my life with money, you know, and it offered that to me. And I think that that's, I mean, that was definitely responsible for the early growth or the creation, of course, and then the early growth of, of Bitcoin. But what I've come to realize as time goes on, you know, years into this journey, is that that, that idea, just like the Bill of Rights, almost like just like the U.S. Constitution, just like any form of rights that we have, you know, it, it's all only there as long as we actively defend it and actively fight for it, you know. And one of my concerns with with Bitcoin, like it's great that we now have, you know, we Bitcoin 
I like to say it wasn't a tech, it was not a technological revolution. It was an intellectual revolution, right? Because there was no new crazy tech, no new microchip that made it possible. It was like an idea that came along and the, all the pieces were already there. It just took putting them together to make it happen, you know? And it's like that idea is, was great for 2008. It was, you know, 2009 when, you know, when um, things started to come together, but as time has gone on, we've seen most Bitcoin holders don't value it. Would you agree with that? Most Bitcoin holders don't value decentralization like you and I? Well, I think, yeah, the average Bitcoin holder just holds a little bit of Bitcoin in their Coinbase account. I mean, so the I think the, the you know, someone who identifies as like a Bitcoiner, you know, which most, most holders of Bitcoin don't, you know, they don't, they don't identify as a holder of coca-cola stock or apple stock or tesla stock or bitcoin um but i think people right. working in the bitcoin space generally have a decent um you know view of decentralization um that's in large part why they're in the bitcoin space and not the broader crypto space um but yeah the average person that just has you know 300 bucks of bitcoin on coinbase along with some doge or something like that is is not really um thinking too often about decentralization um but I think sometimes, you know, in many cases, you know, the surrounding environment encourages certain behavior. So when you look at the, you know, I don't really like chain analysis too much, but they have that chain analysis crypto adoption index. And I think the last time I looked, 18 out of the top 20 countries by crypto adoption were, and they don't, they don't really separate Bitcoin and crypto. So a lot of that's going to be Bitcoin and stable coins, but 18 out of 20 of their crypto adoption index were developing countries. Um, and that's understandable because people in developing countries on average have worse currency problems. And um, uh, in many cases, uh, you know, their, their bank accounts are more likely to be shut down. If, you know, there's kind of an over, there's authoritarian countries, there's inflationary countries, there's ones that are both, um, but there's a whole spectrum to deal with. And so it's like, it's not shocking that more Argentinians as a percentage you know, care deeply about things like Bitcoin and stable coins, because for them, it's, it's not like a theory of why it's useful. It's like, every, it's like either you have them or you're getting devalued. Um, whereas Americans, for example, have a little bit more luxury to not be as cognizant of it. So if things start to get worse in some of these countries, I think then those types of adoptions take off. I mean, for example, when, when Canada was like, you know, freezing bank accounts and stuff, uh, there's a little bit of a mini wave of Bitcoin adoption in Canada. Like there are a number of, of some prominent people that came out and said, well, I didn't really get Bitcoin and, and this event made me see it. And I think that basically the worse the currency gets, either because it's losing value quicker or because something happens to them at, or happens to, or, or something that provokes them directly, then maybe they, you know, there are other things that maybe could have provoked them, but didn't. And something finally does or something happens to them is when a light bulb goes off. And so in some ways, the worst that, that you know, fiat currencies or CBDCs get, um, the more it, it can encourage this type of adoption. Now, certain societies are so locked down that it's it's harder to make happen. I mean, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you have North Korea, um, you know, you have China, on a, like a little further in in the spectrum, and of course you have other ends of the spectrum, but, you know, if someone starts in a pretty free environment and these things start chipping away at it while there's an alternative and there's an army of people kind of like 
you know, shouting and advertising that this alternative exists, um, that makes me somewhat hopeful. And of course, developers are constantly trying to make the, the network better and more usable. I mean, it's certainly more usable now than it was five or 10 years ago. Um, and there's, you know, I, I see a future wave of tools coming out. And I'm, I'm also active in, in a little bit in startups and venture capital. So I try to do my small part to help bring forward some of those tools and fun things that I find interesting. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of the best we can do is, is just try to build the tools or build the world or, or send out a message, you know, whatever our skill set might be to, to, you know, do our small part to change some minds. Yeah. It's so tricky when you, you can't offer stable value. Like we haven't yet figured out how to offer stable value, stable buying power, um, that's decentralized. You know, and, and there's been attempts uh, like within the Ethereum ecosystem, there's been attempts and some of them are working and some of them are not, but they, they still rely on crypto. But it seems like that's the main problem, the main barrier to adoption for decentralized form of cryptocurrency to the extent that Bitcoin is decentralized is the volatility, right? That's at least in my experience, people... You know, and and this happened to people, you know, look at El Salvador, right? El Salvador bought tons of Bitcoin and now it's worth half of what they bought it for. And that's, we're talking about a national, you know, reserve, right? A national treasury where it's, you know, we're talking about millions or billions of dollars. And I understand that there's a, you know, well, just hold it. It'll be okay attitude. But at the same time, you know, for somebody who's trying to just buy food for their kids, for some, to somebody who doesn't have time to think about you know, the, the philosophical um, benefits of decentralization, um, it seems like that's the biggest barrier. And I don't know how we can ever get there, or at least in the near term. Like in the long term, you maybe. But in the near term, the CBDC is definitely going to beat us to that, it seems like, at least for the average person. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get to stable, decentralized value um, anytime soon. I think it's going to be a long process. Um, the reason that developed market fiat currencies are somewhat stable is because they're centrally managed. So they basically sacrifice most of their other attributes. Um, and there's like a central group that's running this control function. You know, if inflation starts to get hot, they use their various tools to try to tame it. If inflation's below their target, they actually try to encourage more inflation, which I think is silly, but that's the policies they use. And the, so the cost of that you know, partial stability is that you you constantly bleed out value, and you're also you know the the central policymakers are prone to making centralized mistakes. Um, in in crypto land, um, you know they generally rely on oracles to try to do decentralization, or the, you know there's various techniques to try to do stable value that that they view as somewhat decentralized, and there's there's a little bit of a spectrum there. Um, but if you if you really emphasize decentralization. You have to minimize how much contact you have with the outside world. If you're trying to read outside data, for example, you're going through an oracle, um, and so you know Bitcoin's kind of the example of one that it's it's as it's as self-referential as possible. It's not completely self-referential, but it's it's about as close of a system as you can get. And the downside is that there's no attempts at stabilization. There's no attempts to like read the outside world and then kind of you know fluctuate the supply or change certain things to stabilize it, um, but that's also what makes it the most immutable, uh, the simplest rule set that's not really as prone to as many 
you know, gaming or changes as other things or, you know, kind of specific models. And I think in Bitcoin's case, to the extent that adoption will in the long run, like to the extent that volatility in the long run will go down, I think it's largely a matter of adoption. So if, you know, Bitcoin was 10 times more widely held and had 10 times liquidity, um, I think it would be somewhat less volatile. And I think basically the, the larger it gets in time and the less upside potential it has, um, the less, you know, certain types of leverage is likely to exist on it. And then also, as we run out of these various types of crypto scams and rehypothecation and things like that, I think people get trained to avoid these types of leverage blowups. And so I think we have to keep in mind it's still, you know, less than a 15-year-old asset class. And you can't really go from zero to trillions of market capitalization without volatility along the way. One analogy that I've used is like, um, or at least comparison, not really analogy, but comparison, is if you look at most technological adoptions, uh, most of them are non-monetary. So, you know, when electricity is invented, there are very few people that switch to electricity and then switch back, right? It's almost a one-way move. You you know, unless you get really poor or something, you don't go back to not having electricity. Same thing is like once you have um, a radio, you don't go back to not having a radio. Once you have um, air conditioning, you don't go back to not having it. Um, and same thing for smartphones. You know, people don't go from flip phones to smartphones and then go back again. And the, the challenge with something like Bitcoin is that because there's one leverage and two, uh, just bad investor behavior, they get euphoric at, at tops and despondent at bottoms. You know, a monetary technology like that is one where it's going to have these big adoption cycles, but then it's going to get over leveraged, over euphoric, and then it's going to have a multi-year bear market. And I don't really see how a monetary technology, you know, especially where the unit of account fluctuates, is, is openly tradable, uh, can adopt quickly. I think kind of in some ways it has a speed limit on how quickly it can realistically adopt because it has to go through multiple of these cycles. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, like, as we think about the future of Bitcoin, um, I wanted to ask you about something that's been on my mind lately. I recently did a podcast with Jameson Lopp, and we were talking about this possibility. As you know, and as we all know, Ethereum moved to a proof of stake um, consensus system, which basically allows the wealthiest Ethereum holders to um, control the network to a certain extent, at least. Bitcoin doesn't have that problem. And a lot of the reason Bitcoin doesn't go to proof of stake uh, is because proof of work prevents uh, or it, it adds in a game mechanic that's really critical to decentralization, you know, having these competing incentives between various parties. But people tend to ignore the fact that that game mechanic that proof of work offers us is is really only effective from the inside looking out almost like it's like within the game within the universe of bitcoin as it currently exists that game mechanic matters um but if you're able to look at it from the outside and you're able to to almost like slice the atom that is bitcoin like like just you know have god mode control um then you can do whatever you want and you you achieve you can achieve that god mode control when you um, 
when arguably, and this is what I want to talk about with you, arguably when you hold most of the value, you know, as custodians now are doing, you know, centralized exchanges holding Bitcoin to the extent, I'm not sure what the percentage is now, but I know it's a huge percentage that they're controlling and it's growing because most people don't care about decentralization. They're willing to leave it on an exchange. So when you reach a point where the Coinbase's and the Binance's and, and the, the um, BitGo's and all the custodians of the world are holding, and eventually the JP Morgan's and you know whoever else are holding most of the value, and they decide, you know what, it would be better for us if we um, hard fork Bitcoin. And we change the consensus mechanism. We make it eco-friendly. We want to do this and that. We want it to be a different system. They begin to accumulate that power. They have most of the world behind them because most of the world has Bitcoin in these in their custody. Uh, and as we all know, anybody can hard fork Bitcoin. It's all about who who can sort of win the hearts and minds of the users. What does that world look like? Because to me, that's inevitable. I mean, I'm, I'm totally willing to debate whether that can happen, but I'm pretty sure it can. But like, what happens once that happens? You know, it's like, are we now the, the Bitcoiners who are just clinging to a, a sinking pirate ship, you know, in that world? Or what, what, what is that dystopian scene? How does it play out for you? Well, I think I think it can happen, but I think there's a, a couple ways to think about it. So one is, you know, the block size war was kind of the first attempt at that because, um, you had the majority of exchanges um, on the side of the bigger blocks. You had um, the majority of hash rate on the side of the bigger blocks. Uh, you had the biggest maker of Bitcoin miners on the side of the bigger blocks. Um, and and it didn't work. Um, so now because it didn't work that time doesn't mean it won't work anytime. Um, but I think it was a heartening example. And it also you know it shows that Bitcoin survived a really big attack on its decentralization in a way that many other cryptocurrencies have not survived or not had to deal with. So I think that's a it's a constructive example to analyze and you know for people are going to form different views on it, but I think that's a useful um, example to analyze. You know, if you look at current statistics, um, you know, according to like say Glassnode data, you know, less than twelve percent of Bitcoin is on exchanges. Uh, now that number is higher if we include pure custodians, you know, like the Fidelities or NIDIG, you know, kind of these other types of non-exchanges. Uh, um, but there's still a pretty significant degree of decentralization. And generally, you've seen the exchange balance go down over time. Now, some of that wound up in GBTC, some of that wound up in like wrapped Bitcoin. Um, so there's, there's certain other honeypots that, that kind of got stuck in. Um, but in general, the, the the trend has been gradually in Bitcoin's lifetime. There's been a gradual distribution, so a little bit a little bit more distribution of coins over time, a little bit away from whales. You know, eventually a whale gets so rich they want to sell out. Those coins kind of spill out, decentralize a little bit. More people come in. Uh, there's no guarantee that that trend will continue, but that has so far been the current trend. Um, in general, I think. One way to look about this is, you know, what happens post fork. So let's say a lot of coins are held by major custodians, and BlackRock and a bunch of them try to initiate some sort of fork that you know is more centralizing and has more problems associated with it, but is more 
endorsed by institutions. Now, maybe that would be more of a credible challenge um, on Bitcoin than the block size war was. Um, but we have to think in mind, then what? So when they have that more centralized blockchain, what happens to it? Does it actually get censored? Um, does that lack of uh, decentralization begin to matter? Because if it does, it starts to become a worse network for many types of users. Um, and so if they if they try to fork it and say, make the supply more inflationary, if they try to fork it and make it easier for um, central like uh, censorship to happen, uh, then it becomes a worse system. And that's where I think, you know, literally culture becomes important, kind of like how Congress has like a 15% approval rating and, you know, news has like what, like a 20% approval rating. I don't even know the current numbers. All these major kind of corporate government institutions are having really bad outcomes. People like people memed ESG so hard that even the CEO of BlackRock admits that that term is kind of dead now. Like they lost the marketing war on the term ESG. And I think the same thing is going to happen to CBDCs. I think that they're going to like literally memes change, you know, memes in their current form are what they are, but I mean, slogans and memes and um, satire, different ways to change minds have been prevalent for, you know, you know, the dawn of language and writing and, and communication and poetry and satire. And so I think that basically you could have certain long drawn out battles, but whenever they're trying to make the system worse, um, and then especially if it's like the corporate tools doing it, they have more capital, but they have in many ways less sophisticated messaging and less truth on their side. And so I, I still think that there's a significant degree of ammo or weaponry on the other side to, to push back on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that the there's greater distribution like among custodians like you were mentioning before i guess the point i was trying to make was that um they're all subject to the same set of regulations for the most part you know and they're all subjects of the same even foreign even ones that aren't based in the u.s still succumb to u.s force you know so the the scenarios that i'm thinking about involve the u.s realizing that they're losing the battle they realize that um that Bitcoin poses a threat, they begin to push uh, regulators and push corporations in a certain way that makes them realize, you know what, maybe we should uh, take these steps to, to change the way that this works. And then combine all of that with the type of media brainwashing that we've seen over the last three, four years. You know, as we know when the government gets on a certain note, when they want to push a certain agenda, they're able to get the media behind them, they're able to, or at least they were able to control social media and really like you and me and anybody listening to this probably is, is going to be on the side that understands like, wow, this is a total psyop. But then you got the other 99% of the world that just does whatever they're told, you know, and then you start to, to get Bitcoin. The old Bitcoin is the enemy. You know, that anybody who uses it is a criminal. The new Bitcoin, this is what you need in order to buy your bread. This is what you need in order to, to be a good citizen. You know, and that's that's what I get worried about with the Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, ultimately, Bitcoin is a meme too, isn't it? It's just an idea. You know, and it's about who owns the idea at any given point. And I get concerned that we're not going to be able to keep ownership of it in the long term. 
No, I think it's a good risk. I, I think it's a it's meme plus truth. So like, you know, if like Dogecoin's a meme, but there's less truth behind it than there is with Bitcoin, I would argue. And so you need both the fundamentals and then you need people to be aware of the fundamentals to to market it and to fight for it. Um you know, again, if we look at like say Nigeria, I mean, they launched their CBDC. They have like one percent adoption, and something like forty percent of people have owned crypto. You know, probably a lot of that's Bitcoin and stable coins. Um, and so it shows that in their case, the government messaging is failing. Um, same thing in a lot of cases in Argentina uh, and other countries. Um, and you know, how many people five years ago would have thought that? that the CEO of BlackRock would admit that ESG is kind of a dead term now, like it's been so hurt. Um, and part of that was like relentless memeing, but then other parts of it is truth. Like for example, um, you know, some of Germany's energy policy decisions have come back to haunt them and these matter for, for people's outcomes. And then they're eventually their, their voting behavior and their polls and things like that. And so I can imagine a situation where they say they fork Bitcoin and some people have, you know, like walled garden, like struggle Bitcoin and other people have real Bitcoin and that could be a battle. But to the extent that there's consequences with having the walled garden Bitcoin, people will begin experiencing those consequences. And meanwhile, the other Bitcoin will still exist. Um, And then it becomes a battle between like the controlled one with the people that lost the ESG uh, meme kind of culture war, and they, they're you know they they're the ones with the failing institutions, the ones with just poll numbers that keep going down. And then when we look at say U.S. presidential candidates, it's funny that you know the top two, so Trump and Biden, they've not been very favorable um, on you know Bitcoin slash the you know the whole space. Whereas when you look, when you look at pretty much all the other major candidates. Um, you know, you look at you look at Kennedy, uh, you look at DeSantis, you, um, you look at um, you know Ramaswamy, like Swamasami, The whole a lot of them are actually pro Bitcoin, um, and so I think over time it's seeping into culture and politics a little bit more. And then one thing I've been interested because I follow a lot the Bitcoin energy argument because um, you know I, I'm initially a electrical engineer by education in my kind of my, kind of my first decade of career and so i've generally taken more attention towards the energy angle to defend why bitcoin energy expenditure is well spent and important and a few years ago you know the narrative was generally not looking great um, but enough people have put out content and have criticized bad journalistic content um, that I'm actually seeing a pretty significant trend change. And one of the things I focused on over the past, like say 18 months, is there there was a rise of progressive Bitcoiners, which I found interesting because Bitcoin has historically been more associated with libertarians and conservatives. And of course it's a global phenomenon. So there's people from all sorts of different political persuasions. Um, but generally, especially on the energy side, a lot of the criticism came from people that would identify with more progressive. Um, but then there's like this wave of progressive Bitcoiners that came. And for example, Jason Meyer just published a book, uh, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. So he's like a progressive school teacher who likes Bitcoin and is really good at articulating around it, both in interviews and with his book. 
and they're sending that to like all the progressive um, politicians. Um, whenever you see like a New York Times article or like a Greenpeace thread and they're criticizing Bitcoin um, energy, you know, usage, if you actually go look in the comments now, there's like tons, there's like a bunch of progressives in there that are like ridiculing it. And so it's still a much smaller component, but it's now there's like this left flank of Bitcoin, which is interesting because it's, you know, it's, it's more firmly been on the right. And now it's like, there's this growing little node on the left there. And when it comes to highly polarized environments where Senate are split 50-50 or Congress is split 50-50 or, you know, things can't get through filibuster, any little kind of pool of like a little node you can get or like a little um, kind of little, little group like that is important. So I think the fact that it's become a little bit more bipartisan or a little bit like less cleanly among part like party lines, I think is good. And it's something I've been trying to kind of fuel the flames of a little bit to kind of keep that alive because I think that that flank attack is like useful. And so I, I think the main thing is to focus on low hanging fruit and keep that, you know, keep that decentralization marketing um, and I would say truth telling uh, alive and well. See, I like speaking with you. You, you. It's like therapy for me. This is good. I'm getting because I'm I'm bouncing all my nihilistic nonsense off of you, and you're giving me all the reasons that I should, all the things that I might be missing. You know, I think there's a lot of you're right as far as like the other points of view that are coming in, and um, I just can't like in the back of my mind, I just have this like constant, uh, this constant just I don't want to call it a fear, but this premonition that in the next 10, 20 years. Bitcoin's going to get political somehow, you know, like there's going to be, and Hey, maybe it's even going to be, you know, with the, the, the new progressive sort of, um, crowd that's coming in and, and, um, making sense of it all. You know, I just don't like the way that humans work. We're just never happy with leaving things alone. <laughs> like if, if we can tweak knobs, we love to tweak knobs. And, We've seen it with the United States, which I, I think the parallels are uncanny between, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution and the way that it was meant to set up rails to the best that technology would allow in 17, you know, the late 1700s. Um, compare that to the spirit behind the genesis of Bitcoin, you know, where to the best that technology would allow in 2009 Bitcoin sets the rails for this financial system that's that gives you an alternative to to central banking and in both cases I, I like I feel like the the constitution was you know sort of thought of as as settled for so many centuries and then all of a sudden you realize it's not so settled because humans can just do whatever the hell they want and with Bitcoin it's kind of I feel like it's it's settled but it's not so settled and I just I feel like the um the 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 narrative is what's up for grabs you know so it's going to be so interesting to see i hope i'm alive to see most of it <laughs> over the next few set the next few decades uh but yeah it all for me it all just comes down to who owns the story yeah well i you know i think it's important to be critical i mean i i think it's 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 important for some people to be constructive and other people to be critical and and ideally for us to all be both i mean we all want to be critical of what we might be missing or what weaknesses might be, and then try to do our best to address those weaknesses. Um, 
which is why you know I try to pick off things that I think are lower hanging fruit and try to fuel those flames a little bit. Um, and you know, I, I think the Constitution analogy is good um, because the Constitution is one of those things where I think it worked because it had certain truth to it. It built up a certain, it was like time for it to exist. Um, it built up a certain critical mass and then it was designed well enough that it was hard to change by design. Um, and so even as politics changed, you know, throughout the country so much, um, that core constitution was, you know, very challenging to change. I mean, in order to do amendment to the constitution, you have to like get a supermajority in Congress and a supermajority of individual states um, to agree to it. And that's why we've not had an amendment for decades because we're in a very polarized environment. So like, what, you know, what do we all agree on? Um, and so that's been a, a, a very useful document that is, it's not incorruptible, but it has a high level of corruption resistance. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's still a social layer to defend it. Um, but the combination of a social layer and then the stat, the fact that the status quo is that it's very hard to change. Um, and when it comes to narratives, I think they're going to they're gonna change over time. It depends what's happening. And we have to remember that there's something like 200 countries in the world. Um, obviously, some countries are have a much bigger sway on kind of global order and global law than others but there is all these kind of like little pockets of safe havens and and different views out there um so even if bitcoin struggles in some jurisdictions it can potentially flourish in other jurisdictions and still have that foothold to try to keep growing from and then what i find interesting about the political divide in the u.s is that the narratives around bitcoin will be somewhat different so you know the libertarian slash conservative view historically has been you know, it, it protects you from state overreach. Uh, it gives you censorship resistant money. It's it's resistant to inflation. And some of these progressive ones are saying, well, it's also protection against, you know, corporate cronyism because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, state overreach and corporate kind of mixing with the government are in some ways kind of the same problem. Um, like, you know, Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street were kind of two sides of the same coin in a way. Um, you know, one side's mad at Wall Street, one side's mad at government bailouts and deficits and, and debt, and they're all intertwined. And so the narratives for why someone might use Bitcoin based on their politics might differ a little bit. Um, but there are ways, like I can make an argument to a progressive why Bitcoin's useful to them. I can make an argument to a conservative why Bitcoin's useful to them. I can make an argument to a libertarian why Bitcoin's useful to them. That's probably the easiest. Um, uh, you know, I can I can make an argument to a person in China, a person in Nigeria, Argentina. There's you can tailor the argument, and there are people that especially that either they live in those jurisdictions or they're members of those political parties, and so they tend to focus the best on constructing those narratives. And so I, you know, that gives me some hope. But I, of course, you know, I don't know what the future is going to look like in 20 years, and I think it's important to be critical of stuff, and then just to build and work towards what we think the future should be. Yeah. Amen to that. I, I hope I'm being constructive with my criticism. I try. <laughs> I, th I think you are. <laughs> sometimes I have my doubts, but sometimes it doesn't feel constructive, but then I think to myself, well, all I want to do is make people think. I think you're the same way. Like I, I, I just want people to think. I just want people to, to think about possibilities even the uncomfortable ones, because what I do know is that if we only focus on what we think is going to be the, the, 
good outcomes, you know, just like sort of have rose colored glasses with everything, then we're going to fail because history has shown that that is a, that is not how you do this. You know, when, when the founders of the, of the United States were sitting down to write the constitution, they weren't thinking about, you know, humanity, um, always doing the right thing. They were thinking about humanity screwing up over and over and over and over, over the last like thousand years and all the ways that people have screwed up everything. So, um, you know, th- understanding that humans are fallible and messed up and are oftentimes going to do the wrong thing. I feel like it's, it's you know, people want to ignore that when they're thinking about the future, but to, to ignore that is a recipe for disaster. But um, I, I'm so glad you joined me here. What's the name of, do you have a name for the book that's coming up? Because by the time people hear this, it might be out. It's called Broken Money, and it's it's expected to come out in uh, late August or early September, and it, it tracks a lot of what we're talking about here, the, the historical centralization of money uh, and some of the tools we have to potentially try to decentralize it. And, you know, uh, you know, I've written articles in the past that have been, you know, critical of Ethereum, for example, and, it, you know, it's not because I set out to make people angry. It's that I set out to say, okay, here's why I don't think this system is decentralized and robust enough to survive government capture, for example. Um, you know, if I look across the full spectrum of, of crypto, I, I view Bitcoin as the, the best current chance we, we have. Um, I still think there's more tools that can be added to it to make it, say, more private or more decentralized. Um, you know, not necessarily in the base layer, but just different tools that are kind of, um, you know, stratum V2 for mining or fediment for custody and privacy you know there's different kind of tools we can add uh, throughout the ecosystem and i think that um you know whether people are capital allocators or developers or just interested in the subject i mean maybe they're political and they you know they vote and so their vote matters um and so whatever they do in life i think that you know if they're if they're interested in the subject they should learn about it and then do whatever small part they play, uh, especially if they're listening to a podcast like this, where, you know, they probably agree with us to, to you know, some extent, um, to go out and see what little part they can play to try to make a more decentralized world more likely than a more centralized world. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. As far as, you know, I, I think that if people take the time to learn and they get educated and they, they actually, um, dive in and get down the rabbit hole. Once you do that, you're sold, you know, and that's not my concern at all. Like once people are there, my concern is that most people will never get there. You know, my concern is that people just don't have the curiosity, don't have the intellectual um, curiosity to, to even approach it because they're too busy trying to just feed their, their kids, you know, they're too busy just trying to survive in the world. So Oh man, it's going to, it's, it's such an exciting thing to think about, like how it's going to play out. Um, and whether, you know, we can overcome that sort of apathy. I feel like that most of the world has when it comes to money. So I guess that's what we're all trying to do. Just say, that's why I have a podcast, man, just to see if people will listen and try to, you know, think these things through. But, um, I want to thank you again. Any, any closing thoughts? Uh, no, just thank you for having me and thanks for doing what you're doing with, um, you know, trying to bring attention to the issues you care about. Thanks to you too. 